Well, what's going on tonight? How's everybody doing? You guys doing all right? Sunday night, anybody watch football today? That's what I'm talking about. My team is doing horrible. I don't care about baseball one bit, but football is where it's at. Huh? My team are, okay, so here's the deal. I like the Seahawks. But they've really let me down by their decisions in the front office where they've brought in some players I don't really care for. So I'm a Titans fan right now. I'm still a Seahawks fan, but I enjoy watching the Titans more because my favorite quarterback in the NFL, Matt Hasselbeck, is on the Titans. No, no, no. no. Anyway, you remember that. So anyway, so tonight... I want, we're going to talk about, we're going we're gonna to continue on this whole idea of perspectives, the difference between our perspective and God's perspective on different things. And, and so tonight, before I begin, I want to talk about something that will really more like lead into it. I'm not going to just spend the whole time talking about the perspective, but, but at the end, I really want to draw out this perspective of God's view towards the lost versus our view towards the loss. But I really want to kind of set the stage with another thing. And, and by doing that, I was looking on the internet earlier today, and I was trying to find the top 10 most committed crimes in America. And, and I really couldn't find anything that was real solid. It was like Yahoo Answers and things like that. So I'm not going to use that as any sort of, of, any sort of you know, sermon illustration stuff. But Tonight, I do want to talk about probably what I would say is the most committed crime in America. In fact, I'll be honest with you. If I look back at my life over, over the course of probably the 5, 10, probably my whole life, I've committed this crime many, many times. I'm not talking about speeding. I'm not talking about jaywalking. But I'm talking about a crime that I would be willing to bet many of us in this room have committed and I'm just thankful that up to this point that I haven't been sentenced to like 50 years in prison for all my continuous counts of doing this over and over and over again. But the crime that I want to talk to you about tonight is loitering. Anybody ever loiter before? I think Las Vegas is probably one of the top places in the world for loitering, especially downtown on Las Vegas Boulevard. A lot of people stand around. Doing nothing. Now, with loitering, uh, I didn't even realize I was loitering until one day I was making good use of my time and I was surfing the internet and I came across this thing about loitering. So I, I looked at it and I was like, you know what? I better check out this whole deal about loitering. So I look up and I'm looking at the definition and I want to share it with you. In 1992, New York City adopted a law, an anti loitering law. And they define loitering as this. If, if you have a pen and a paper, you really got to write this down. This is so important that you get this tonight. In 1992, New York City adopted an anti-loitering law, and they define loitering as this. Ready? To remain in any one place. I'll let you write. I'll stop because I hate it when people just keep going. And you're like, what would you say again? To remain in any one place with no apparent purpose. To remain in any one place with no apparent purpose. See, the term on purpose means to be intentional. With no purpose really means to be pointless. And really quick, before we we go on, I, I need a couple volunteers. And what I need, I need the two fastest people in this room. The fastest, most athletic 
people in this room. Okay. Yeah, come on up. There's one. I need another fast person. Fast. You're fast? Why don't you come on up here? Here's what I need you guys to do. I, I, I need you guys to pay attention to this. I need these two really quick. I want you guys to line. I want you to line up right here facing that way. And I want you to line up right here facing that way. And, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to have you guys. I want you guys to, to race. When I say go, I want you to go as fast as you can. As fast as you can. You got that? Okay. When I say go, I want to see. Ready? Get set. You ready? Oh, no, don't worry about that. I just want you to go. Okay, I don't, I don't, you don't need to worry about where you're going. I just want you to run as fast as you can and whoever wins, wins, all right? No, I don't want to put rules on this. Don't be telling me. Don't be telling me how to do my thing, all right? It's ridiculous. What, you want to come up here and speak tonight? I'm just kidding. All right. No, you know what? I'm not going to have you raise. Go ahead and sit down. But what I want you can, you guys can sit down. That's fine. You were excited because you knew you were going to win, and you thought I was going to give you like 20 bucks, but I'm not going to. So what we're going to do tonight is I really want to point out a really quick principle there. I could have had them race right there on that spot. And, and it, I don't know. I, I think maybe she would have been a little faster. I'm just guessing. But without a direction and without a purpose, there is no reason to race. There's no, they, they didn't even know where they were going. And, and in life, I wish we would get that concept in our daily decisions because many of us walk throughout life with no apparent purpose. We stand there in pointless activity. And just like these guys were about to race... Not knowing where they're going. Many of us walk throughout our days without any plan, without any intention, without any purpose in mind. So in 1992, New York City adopted an anti-loitering law. They, they again, they defined it as to remain in one place with no apparent purpose. See, loitering was a big deal back then. And it still is nowadays because what was happening is that people were hanging out at a place that was designed for one thing, like a grocery store. They would have groups of people standing outside of the grocery store, and they would, they would group up, but they weren't there to shop. They were there to intimidate customers because, for whatever reason, the store owner hadn't paid them their rent to protect their store. So they wouldn't allow people into the store. In other places, there would be a group of people standing there, and they'd be trafficking drugs. They would have no intention whatsoever to be buying what it was made to be there for. They weren't going to buy the goods, They wanted to stand outside and sell drugs and recruit gang members and to commit violent crimes. And this became such a big deal that New York City said, look, we got to put a stop to this. So we're going to adopt this law, this anti-loitering law. And I sit there and think, how many times in our lives are we standing in a place with no apparent purpose? Doing something that we were not designed to do. And so really quick, if you brought your Bibles, I want you to open to 2 Samuel chapter 11. I want to tell you a story, and I know you've probably heard this story a lot of times, but I want to pull something out of it that is really valuable for us to see. So 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we're going to start in verse 1, and and, uh, I'm going to read a little bit and paraphrase some of it, so be ready. Don't follow along. You'll be like, man, what translation is that? This is my translation. (laughs) 
Here we go. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up. He was laying in his bed. And he went for a walk around the roof of his house. And while he was walking around the roof of his house, he noticed this lady named Jezebel bathing. Now listen, before we even go on, I don't want you guys going home and say, Hey, Pastor Aaron said it's cool. Even David in the Bible would try and look at girls when they're not supposed to. No, I'm not saying that. David did this. He did something wrong. Here we go. So David's walking around his porch. He sees this girl named Jezebel bathing, and he's like, man, she is hot. I need to get her over here right now. So he sends one of his buddies over, get her to my house. So she comes home, and what happens? Everybody knows the story. They do something they're not supposed to do. Well, she goes home and finds out she's pregnant. So she comes back, David, I'm pregnant. He's like, oh, my gosh, the three worst words any single man could ever hear. I am pregnant. Any single woman as well. So David sent word out to the fields because he found out that Jezebel. (laughs) All right, Bathsheba. Did I say Jezebel earlier? Because I don't know where I'm at right now. So he's talking to Bathsheba and he sends word to Uriah, which is her husband. And he brings him back in from work. He's like, man, I got to figure this out. How can I get out of this bind I'm in? She's pregnant. Now, they don't have the, they don't have the Maury show. And they don't have, you know, Jerry Springer to do the DNA testing. They didn't have that back then. So he's like, if I can get him to come home and spend some time with his wife, I can get off with this. No problem. No one will ever know. So he brings Uriah home and he says, Uriah, listen, man, I just wanted to give you a break. I just thought this would be really nice for you to come home for a couple of days, eat some good food, then go home and spend some time with your wife, and then you can go back to battle. So that night he sends him off and then he realizes Uriah slept on the front porch of the palace. He comes out, he's like, dude, what are you doing, man? And he's like, listen, my fellow soldiers are out there fighting right now. What on earth am I doing going home to my wife eating good food when all of them are out there in battle. And David's like, man, what am I going to do? So David's like, no, man, just go home. Just really go home. And he wouldn't go home. So David said, all right, I'm going to send you back to war. And he sends him with a letter. Now talk about crazy. He sends him with a letter addressed to Joab. And he says, take this letter to Joab and let him read it. Just whatever you do, do not open it. So he gets there and Joab reads it and finds out, I want you to take everybody to the front lines where the battle is the fiercest. And I want you to leave your eye in the front. I want everybody to back out as quick as you can. Because I want him to die. So they did it. And Uriah was killed. That's a big deal when I read that story. And I'll tell you why. Because I want to take a look at David for just a minute. Because David was the king. Does anybody know what the king's job was? What his purpose was? The king's purpose was to lead his nation. He was supposed to represent God. He was supposed to represent values. He was supposed to represent leadership and vision and direction to the people that he was king over. David was supposed to be at war. 
But instead, he sent somebody else to represent him. And what did he do? He stayed at home and he kicked back. He put his feet up and he relaxed with no apparent purpose. See, when we start reading the story, we find out that David's getting up from a nap. It's not even in the middle of the night. It's just evening. He's just been hanging out, eating food all day, doing his thing. He wakes up from a nap and he's like, mm, maybe I'll go outside and see if there's any ladies. So David's waking up from a nap. And then we find out that that's when he begins to get himself into trouble. And he begins to enter into one of the most darkest moments of his life. See, his time was being consumed. Listen, you guys... Uh, hear this his time was being consumed with pointless action pointless action and that's when one of the darkest periods of his life began he committed adultery he put together a scheme to keep it on the down low and when that didn't work he had the guy killed to save his own butt A moment of pointless action led David to some of the worst decisions he could ever make in his life. See, if we want to be on the same page as God and his perspective, we have got to make sure that we are intentional with the time he has given us. So tonight, I want to ask you a question. And I I want you to be honest with yourself. So I want everybody to just close your eyes just for a second. And I want you to really think about, I'm going to ask you this question. I want you to really just think about your life over the past 12 months. The question is this, what is consuming your time? Just think about it. What is consuming your time? Is it pointless action or does it reflect God's purpose for your life? See, I'm determined to do whatever I can do in my life to make sure that I stay on the same page that God wants me to be on. And that requires me to be intentional with every moment that I have. See, If I'm going to be honest with myself, because I look at my life and I think about all the distractions that I have, all the things that I spend time pursuing pointless action, staying in one place with no apparent purpose, and I think about all the things in my life, and I'm going to be honest with you tonight, and I want to see if maybe you can relate to me. Maybe you have the same areas of distraction that I do. Because in, in John 12, 26, it says this. Jesus tells us, whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Serving and following Jesus is a constant pursuit. It's a constant action. It's a constant intention. It's not just something where I go to church and say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I serve God all the time. I serve him. Yep. I'm a Christian. I I live for God. I follow Jesus. That's much as my life. It's not about saying it. It's about doing it. It's about being intentional. So if I'm going to look at my life and think about what kind of stuff that I did, I got to really quick ask myself, Jesus, what was your example? So while I'm saying this, I want you to think about all the times throughout the Bible Jesus gave 
an example of how to spend our time. So, but before we get into that, I want us to look at our life. And, and, and really, I think because we live in such a technological time, we live in a world, I tell you, man, the technology is crazy. My kids, I, my oldest is 11. I've got a uh, nine. She just turned nine, okay? I just wasn't sure if it happened or not. Anyway, and then I've got a nine-month-old. My nine-month-old probably knows more about technology than I do. That's how advanced our culture has become. Did you know that when I was in high school? (laughs) What is it? (laughs) Yes, we had vehicles back then. But when I was in high school, the Internet was just getting going. If you wanted Internet, though, it was like, now this at the time, it was the coolest, fastest thing on earth was dial-up, and it was really slow dial-up, and you had to, like, wind up your computer, and it would start up, and then you'd hear the phone ring, and then that creaking, gross noise, and then it would get online, and then, like, whoa. But it didn't happen until I was a senior in high school. The coolest thing you could do on a computer when I was in high school was play solitaire. And that little, that little mind game. Minesweeper, man. I mean, clicking on the square. Oh, crap, I hit a bomb. <laughs> Worst graphics ever. But that was the coolest. Actually, when I was young, there was a computer game out called The Oregon Trail. Yeah. Dude. That was one of my favorites. And it was just a black screen with green outlines. That's all it was. And it was cool. But see, we live in a technology filled environment now my son comes home he he knows more about computers I, I'm, I'm serious he's 11 he knows more about how to run a computer than i do and i don't let him touch it because i'm afraid he's gonna like reprogram the whole thing but he knows more than i do and he's 11 because that's what he's used to that's all he knows and i had to grow up and learn in it so i, I started thinking about all of the things that distract me. And because we live in such a technological age, our lives, I believe that my life, and I'm sure that yours might be as well, are consumed with what I like to call a big five. The big five. Now, I'm going to say them really quick, and if you've got them, I just want you to, I just want you to be like, just represent for me. MP3 players, iPods. Anybody got one? All right. How about video games? Anybody got a video game system of some sort? All right. Cell phone? Computer? Television? All right. So, okay, so I'm pretty safe. So how many people in this room would say that you own two of these items? Well, you don't have to scream anymore. I'm Just raise your hand. Just be like, I got two. How about this? Let's start with five. Who's got all five of them? Okay. Four? Wait. How do I do that? Just forget it. We'll just assume everybody in this room has all five. I'm messed up right now. My math is is not good. Did you know in America right now, there's approximately about 78 million 8 to 30-year-olds? 78 million. 80% of them own three or more of these items. 80% in America right now. That's a big deal. Did you know that I think, personally, uh, I, never mind. I'm not, I was going to try and, like, 
like put them in order of probably the most distracting. But instead of that, I'm just going to list them, and I'm going to let you kind of decide for yourself. But the first thing that I'm thinking of tonight is an MP3 player. An MP3 player or an iPod or some of you with your iPhones or whatever, did you know the average teenager in America right now listens to over one and a half hours a day on their iPod or MP3 player? One and a half hours per day is filled with music. Now, I'm not saying music is bad. Some of you are like, listen, I only listen to worship music. How can that be bad? Worship music is not bad, or I only listen to music when I'm having a quiet time, and so music isn't bad. Listen, music can be distracting. If you're you're me, when I get in the car, the first thing I do, even if I'm 20 minutes late for something, I sit there and i got to find my jam. i got to be like, what am I going to listen to on the way to where I'm about to be really late for? But i got to know it because I love music. Anybody else like that? Yeah, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. Now, I love, if you ever ride with me in the car, you will notice a couple of things. And the most important thing is usually I will not talk much to you because I like to listen to the radio when I'm driving. It's just something I like to do. I don't want to ignore you. It's not that I don't care about you, but I just like the music better. Is that all right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't, I don't really think that way. But I love listening to music. But some of us sit there and say, you know what? It can't be distracting if I'm just listening to Christian music or, or worship music. And if I'm just listening to music when I have a quiet time. And, and, but you know what? Music is very emotional. Have you ever been like in a prayer time and you're like, oh man, I was praying this morning and I had like this mix on. And I was just sitting there just praying, worshiping God. And, and this song came on and it just really confirmed something to me. It just confirmed that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a missionary when I grow up. And you're like, how did you get that from a song? Because what, what would have happened if, like, Justin Bieber came on when you were praying? Well, you know, I just was praying, and Justin Bieber's song, Baby, 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 came on. I'm going to move to Los Angeles, and I'm going to go marry him. I know I'm a 33-year-old man, but I was praying, and this song came on. It must have meant something. Listen, music can be distracting, and it's not always good, and sometimes we try and make it good just because when we're doing it. No, that's not the case. Music can be distracting. In fact, the fact of the matter is this. In America today, music consumes our time. Music consumes our time. Music can distract us. The second item in the top five is is video game systems. And real quick, I just got a question. Who in here would say, the Xbox 360 is better than the PS3. Yes, sir, right here. Who would say the PS3 is better than the Xbox 360? I mean, the Wii doesn't even need to be thrown into this conversation because the Wii is just like, Wii is like a baby's toy. When my baby is upset, I throw the Wii at him. Here, play this, son. I can't stand the Wii. Did you know that 80 percent, 80, 80%, 87%, it's a new number I made up, 87% of 18 to 18, see, 8 to 17 year olds play video games at home, 87%. Among teens, 71% of males and almost 50% of females play video games. Girls, who plays video games in here? Just, I'm just curious. 
All right, they're proud. They're proud of it. The only video game I can get my wife to play is Dr. Mario. You ever play that? You guys, you guys weren't even born when that came out. It's like Tetris, but it's little pills, and you got to like race to knock them all out. It's really dumb. But we play it, and it's crazy. Did you know males spend an average of one hour a day and girls spend an average of 50 minutes a day playing video games? You know what's scary about that is these are averages. That means somebody's playing way more than that. The third thing on our list uh, uh, of the big five is cell phones. Who loves your cell phone? I mean, come on. I, I would bet money that somebody is talking on their cell phone right now in this room. Be honest. You? Are you serious? He's got one of the headsets in, doesn't he? Hold on a second. I really did get a text message. Is it okay if I check it? This is serious. This is really serious. This is serious. Hold on a second. Wait. Hold on. There. Wait, what? I cannot tell you. I didn't really get a text message. I was just messing around. But seriously, I mean, I'm amazed at how many of us are sitting there in a time where we shouldn't be on our phones, but we're like, oh man, I have got to see what someone is telling me right now. Mark, just text message me. Mark, what are you doing on your phone? Kim is calling me. I think that proves my point. They should all be off right now. Why are they even on? Mine is, mine is on for an illustration. No. I'm checking the football scores. I'm just kidding. I'm not. But seriously. Who in here loves to talk on the phone? Okay. Now, I hear you. Now, let me finish. Let me finish. Because I know the numbers are declining rapidly. Who in here loves to text on your phone? Okay. Now, you know what worries me about texting, right? What worries me about texting is that it's making us socially dumb. You realize that, right? If you walked up to somebody and talked to them the way you text to them, it just doesn't work out that way. You've got to text it. So if you can't talk the way you text. Cell phones are very distracting who man some of you guys are like i gotta call somebody right now and tell them about this sermon about cell phones but really the honest truth is cell phones consume our time cell phones distract us when we're having meetings here at the church a lot of times Vance will be like, hey man, put it on airplane mode because I know every one of us are going to check text messages, we're going to check emails, we're going to get online and, and see what, how much plane tickets are, whatever. We just think of stuff. So turn the phone off. And so that's a real indication that cell phones are distracting and they consume our time. I'm not saying they're wrong, I'm just saying they consume our time. Now, the fourth thing on the big five is computers. Now, 
who would say you are on the computer? Now, now that you have cell phones, the smartphones and stuff, you're on the internet and stuff on your phone. So we'll continue. We will, we will go ahead and just include cell phone internet usage with computer internet usage, okay? Who in here is on the computer all the time? The internet all the time. For school, yeah, right. Facebook is not part of school. I don't you don't have a Facebook? You serious? It's okay. It's horrible. It's stupid. Does anybody, now my wife made this up earlier. She told me this. Does anybody ever get on Facebook and you're on there forever and you get so bored you just reload Facebook again to see what <laughs> new is going on? I don't know. We all do. Man, I'll tell you what, listen to this. 87% of 12 to 17-year-olds use the internet. 55% of teenagers use social networking sites such as MySpace, Facebook, Twitter, whatever. You still use MySpace? I would say MySpace is more like 2006. Anyway... MySpace is still number two. It still is number two. I don't know what Tumblr is. I, I, here's the deal. I know what Tumblr is. But why on earth would I want to write an entire blog about something? Oh, my gosh. Hey, you know what I'm going to do? You know what would be so fun? Let me write a blog. It's not a good use of your time. I'm telling you. <laughs> The average teenager in America spends over two hours a day on the Internet. And I bet you that number, this is a couple years old, I bet you that number has jumped drastically due to smartphones. I mean, oh my gosh, I bet you we spend hour after hour on the Internet. The truth is, computers consume our time. Computers distract us. And then then the fifth one, now technology the way it is i don't even think this is as big as it used to be but it's still big but television who in here watches who would say you're more of a disney nickelodeon type of a person i am not i will not raise my hands for this who would say you're more of an espn nfl network type of a person all right yes okay who would say you are more of a uh i'm not even going to mention those channels they're horrible Who's more of like the MTV type of person? Oh, horrible. There are so many different television channels we can pick from. And today, did you know, listen to this. Did you know the average teenager watches over two hours of TV a day? I just said averages. Which means somebody's watching way more than two hours a day. Somebody gets home from school and watches the Lord of Rings trilogy every afternoon. So anyway, the the fact of the matter is, is TV consumes our time. It's distracting. It consumes our time. The average American teenager spends, now average which means some of you spend less, but some people spend way more, spend seven hours a day consuming media from the big five. Seven hours a day. That's a big number. I mean, I'm only awake for like nine hours a day. (laughs) 
No, just kidding. One study says this. Now, this is adults, too, because don't, don't, don't go home and be like, I'm so horrible. Parents do this, too, okay? Uh, my mom discovered Facebook, and she, she's like 900 years old. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I love my mom. Don't you boo her. The average American adult and teenager will spend an estimated, listen to this, 3,518 hours, which is nearly five months, and $1,000 consuming media in a given year from the big five. And that doesn't even include a cell phone bill. Media consumes our time, and we live in in such a day where technology is consuming our time, and it's so distracting. You know, a lot of the time when we're on one of the big five, we are hanging out in one place with no apparent purpose, except for entertaining ourselves. Sometimes I even have to ask myself, and Ben Ben even brought this up during worship. Sometimes I have to ask myself, does God even compete with technology? And we wonder sometimes why God might seem distant. We heard that song tonight, God, you're constantly here with us. Well, that's true. He is constantly there with us, but sometimes we're too distracted to notice that he's there. And then we're like, you know, I wonder where God is, man. I just don't feel close to him anymore. We'll put some things down and take some time. Now, listen, and now after, I, after I realized I had a loitering problem, I wanted to see what kind of lesson Jesus could teach me about time management. Multiple times the Bible tells us how Jesus would sneak away from the noises and distractions of life, and he would find a quiet place alone to pray and strengthen his spiritual life and his character. Listen to this. In Mark chapter 1, verse 35, it says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, he left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. In Luke chapter 6, it says, On, on those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. In Matthew chapter 14, it says, After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside and prayed. See, Jesus understood the value of getting away and taking care of his spirit. Now, something I need you to understand. Now we're going to get on this perspective thing. How God views the lost compared to how we have a tendency to view the lost. Two phrases or words come to my mind when I think of God's perspective towards the lost. You might want to write these down. God's perspective towards the lost. Two words. One, urgent. And two, heartbreak. God's heart is breaking Every single day when somebody dies and they're lost, when somebody else is lost that doesn't receive Christ, his heart is breaking. And there's a sense of urgency because God is going to come back one of these days. And not only that, but we don't know how many days we have left. 
There's a major sense of urgency. And Jesus knew this. Did you realize? I don't know if you ever read the Bible, uh, you know, and really studied it. But in, in the Gospels where it talks about Jesus' life, all throughout the Gospels you see that Jesus never did anything on his own power. Jesus always was led by the Spirit of God. Jesus always allowed God to speak through him. Always the miracles. Every miracle Jesus ever did was God's power through him. And the reason why he would get away from the crowd and spend time praying on the mountainside, away from the noise and the distractions, because he knew if he was going to do what God wanted him to do, if he knew if he was going to do God's purpose in his life, that he would have to get away and spend time with God, because if he didn't do that, he wouldn't be sensitive to God in his life. God's perspective towards the lost is urgency and it's heartbreak. And it's so important for us as people to say, God, I I sense your urgency. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, it says that we need to make the best use of our time. Because the days are evil. In Colossians chapter 4, it says that we need to conduct ourselves when we're around outsiders, when we're around people who don't know Jesus, because We only have so much time. There's a sense of urgency. And God says, listen, it's not wrong to talk on your cell phone. It's not wrong to play a video game. It's not wrong to listen to music. But it is wrong to consume your life with it and allow it to distract you from being involved with God's purpose for your life. Now, each and every one of us in this room, we have a different purpose. You know, when it comes to our purpose, particular life god has a different plan for each and every one of us the bible tells us that he knew what we were going to do before we were formed in our mother's womb the bible tells us that he has a great plan for us to prosper us but god also has a bigger plan for us and that's found in matthew chapter 28 when he gives us the great commission he says listen you need to go and make disciples of every nation Teach them to obey all I've commanded you. And baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to say, and I love this because we sang about it. But don't worry, I will always be with you. God's purpose for our lives is to get in on his activity around this world and be involved with his heart towards the lost. And his heart towards the lost is urgency And heartbreak. See, it's God's desire to reconcile people back to himself the way it was supposed to be. And it's our job to make the best use of our time to share that with the people around us in our lives. And I cannot tell you how many times I see many of us at school, uh, at work, or wherever we're at. We walk around with our earbuds in. Nobody's getting into my world right now because I got my tunes playing. And God's saying, listen, you have an opportunity to talk to that kid right there, but you don't, you're not interested because you want to spend time with consumed in your music. Listen, it's so important that we understand God's perspective towards the lost, but not only understand it, but adopt it as our own. Because I feel like many of our perspectives towards the lost is this. Oh, man, I hope they get saved. Hope they show up tonight, give their lives to Jesus. 
God's like, invite them. You know what? Let me challenge you guys. There shouldn't be one week that you come here and you don't invite somebody. There shouldn't be one week. There's none of this invite your friend night stuff. It's every single week is invite your friend night. Because you have friends that need to know Jesus. And if you don't introduce them to Jesus, they'll never know it. And you might be the only person in their life that can do that for them. Listen, it's so important that you make the best use of time. Because God's heart and his perspective towards the loss is urgency and heartbreak. Jesus claims in the Bible, he says, I came to seek and to save the lost. Not some of the lost, not a few guys over there, but the lost. Jesus has a heart for the lost and it breaks his heart when someone doesn't come to him. I'm going to close with this verse. It's John 3.16, and you guys know this. It's, very, it's kind of like the Cadillac of Christian verses, you know. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Many of us have heard that many, many times, and many of us have that memorized. But did you know there's people in this world that are dying To hear that simple message. And God is counting on us to share it with them. Man, I don't care if there's kids out there doing the worst thing imaginable. It does not matter to me. Because the Bible tells me right after that, in John 3.17, it says that God didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn it. He came to the world to save it. Hey, man, you guys can come up if you want. God didn't come to this world to condemn it. He came to save it. So listen, God's perspective towards the lost is one of urgency and of heartbreak. And we as people need to adopt that with everything in us. That when we see somebody who doesn't know Jesus, that we don't just say, you know what, man, I, I'm too busy right now. We need to say, you know what, I need to feel this sense of urgency and this sense of heartbreak the way Jesus does. Let's bow our heads really quick. Jesus, I thank you so much tonight that I can call on you. I thank you, Jesus, that you have reached out and made it possible for me to be saved and to know you. But Lord, I do not want to be selfish with what you have freely given to me. So tonight, Jesus, I am asking you to break my heart for the lost. I'm asking you to break my heart for my friends and family and even people I don't know. 
But for those who don't know Jesus, God, break my heart. Lord, put in me a sense of urgency to know that my days are numbered and I may not have another day to tell them about your love. Not about your condemnation, but about your love. If you're in this room tonight, I don't know who's here. But if you're here and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if he is not your Lord and Savior, if you have not accepted him to be your Savior, can I just repeat this? That God's heart for you is one of heartbreak and of urgency. He loves you so much. sent his son I know you've probably heard this before but he really sent his own flesh and blood his son here to try and build that bridge between you and him so you could have a relationship the Bible is so clear that if we don't have a relationship with Christ that he loves us and that he pursues us. But we need to remember the only person that can make the choice to accept that is us. Nobody can do it for you. Your parents can't, your friends can't. Only you can make that decision to accept Christ's love and his sacrifice for you. If you're in here tonight and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you say, you know what? Aaron's weird. But what I'm hearing about God is awesome. If you in your heart, you feel that you have a desire to accept Jesus as your Savior for real, would you just raise your hand really quick? Nobody's looking around. I just want to pray with you. Anybody at all? Just raise your hand really quick. There's a hand right there. Would you do me a favor? Would everybody just repeat this prayer after me, especially you that rose your hand? Because this needs to be a personal moment between you and God. And then after you do that, I want you to talk to your small group leader about the decision you made. But just do me a favor. Everybody repeat this after me. Say, Dear Jesus, my heart is yours I believe that you died and rose again for me and tonight I admit that I messed up that I'm a sinner but you love me and I accept your love and I accept your leadership into my life Jesus be my savior I want to spend eternity with you thank you for your sacrifice in Jesus name Amen